You're listening to the Word of Hope, sermons preached at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Today's sermon is preached by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Then Jesus said to them, How is it that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. You may be seated. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Dear Saints, when it comes to reading the Bible, I think that there's one thing that we need above all to understand what the Scriptures are saying to us. This one most important thing that throws on the light to the pages of the Bible and helps us know what the prophets and the apostles intend. And that thing is the proper distinction between law and gospel. It really is the difference between walking around in a room with the lights off versus walking around in a room with the lights on. When you know this distinction between the law and the gospel, it throws on an illuminating light so that we can understand what the scriptures are like. Now, it is an amazing story. I, and I was thinking about this all week, really, how, uh, how differently we look at the scriptures and we look at the Bible and the teaching of the Bible when we know the distinction between the law and the gospel and when we don't. I think I've told you guys this story about uh, how I went back and looked at the Bible that I had when I was in college. This was before I knew the difference between law and gospel. And I would look at the passages that I had marked and highlighted and underlined and all of this. And the passages that I had marked and indicated were important to me were all the commandments that the Lord was giving. All the law. All the instructions. In other words, I, I was reading the Bible, I think very distinctly, I was reading the Bible and I was asking the question, what is this telling me that I ought to do today? And if you're asking that question of the Bible, then the answer is going to be law. It's going to be instruction. It's going to be command. So that all those passages were marked. And then I would come to the passages of promise, passages of gift, passages of blessing, passages of the gospel, and, and it was blank. I didn't know what to do with them. I didn't know if I should underline them or pay attention. I, didn't, I simply didn't know. And I think that this is one of the things that probably it, it, it tempts all of us and it tempts a major part of Christianity, and that is to read the Bible as a law book or an instruction book. Simply a law book or an instruction book. So this distinction between law and gospel teaches us to look for two things in the Bible. To look for God's commands and to look for His promises. To look for the threats and to look for the blessings. To look for the instruction and to look to the, for, for the forgiveness of sins and those things that give to us a good conscience. And the text that we have in front of us is a perfect place to consider this distinction between law and gospel. Especially because the text kind of has these, well, it doesn't kind of, it has these two parts. It has the last questioning of the Pharisees to Jesus in which Jesus unfolds beautifully the law. And then it has this question from Jesus to the Pharisees, this riddle that he gives to them, which is all gospel. Now, I remember, by the way, in, um, in seminary, when they were teaching us how to preach they said, you, you should know this, that when people leave the sermon, they only remember one thing that you said. And I thought, well, that means you should probably only say one thing in a sermon, and then people have it all. But I'm not going to follow that rule this morning. 
In fact, there's a lot that we want to consider, especially as Jesus unfolds the law, and there's a lot that we want to consider with the gospel. So and I'm just giving you a warning. Buckle up. So the law. Remember, the text is uh, the account of Jesus on Holy Tuesday, the last day of Jesus' public teaching. In fact, a- after he silences the Pharisees at the end of our text, Jesus leaves the temple and he goes down, he goes up on the Sermon on the Mount, he preaches about the last day, and, and the next time he's back in Jerusalem, it's for the Last Supper and to be arrested, tried, and crucified. So we're in the middle of Holy Week. And the scribes and the Pharisees are trying everything that they can to accuse Jesus, to get Jesus in trouble, to get him arrested, and so forth. So they were bringing these questions to Jesus. They brought him the question first about paying taxes. And Jesus, remember, shows him the coin and says, who's Imogen? They bring him the question about marriage and the resurrection, the story of the woman who had five husbands, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus answers that question. And now comes the third question, this question that the rabbis had struggled over and simply couldn't answer. It goes like this, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, says to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, it's an, it's an amazing thing to consider that for centuries, the rabbis had been debating this question, talking about this question, and fighting over this question. What's the greatest commandment? They didn't know how to answer it at all. And, and they give it to Jesus, and he just gives them an answer like this. You want the greatest commandment? Here's what it is. Love God and love your neighbor. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. If you want to condense the law, the two tables of the law, down to two simple statements, you have it just right there. Love God and love your neighbor. And it gets reduced down even more to simply one word. Love. St. Paul says that love is the fulfilling of the law. So that if we want to know what the law says to us, we have it in this singular word that we ought to love. That we ought to love God and love our neighbor. Now, here is a lot to say. And, and, and so we can make a few quick points. In fact, six quick points. Six. You might want to, I don't know if it helps to jot them down to pay attention, although we have the advantage of it being cold, so it makes it harder to doze off. Point one. Love is a beautiful summary of the law, but that one word, love, doesn't replace the law. There's a theological danger here that confronts us, and it goes something like this. We don't need the Ten Commandments because we have these two commandments from Jesus, love God and love your neighbor. Or then we go even further and say, we don't even need those two commandments because we simply have the one word, love. And we think this, that if we're motivated by love, then we're doing the right thing. That is wrong, in fact. I don't know, I, we could probably have a bunch of examples. The one that I thought of is something like this. Pastor, it's fine for us to move in together. After all, we love each other. Now, that's the easiest example, but we can apply it across the board, is that we're tempted to use the word love against the commandments. Now, this is wrong. 
Love doesn't replace the commandments. Love is never an excuse to sin, but rather the commandments of God give shape to love, and that's point two. Love takes shape according to the Ten Commandments. Now, when we push a little bit on this, we recognize that love is more than a feeling or an emotion, that love oftentimes, most oftentimes, shows up as a concrete action. Love gives, love serves, love dies. The old English, you remember the King James, how it translated the word love, it said charity. Charity is patient, charity is kind, and so forth. And that's nice, actually, it's helpful. And to know that, that love is a concrete action, and in particular, that the works of love take their shape according to the Ten Commandments. There's a fourth commandment shaped love. Honor your father and your mother. And there's a sixth commandment shaped love. You shall not commit adultery. There's a second commandment shaped love. Remember the name of the Lord your God. There's a third commandment shaped love. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. So that when we pray, we're loving God according to the second commandment. When we hear His Word, we're loving God according to the third commandment. When we live in, in chastity, we're loving our neighbor according to the sixth commandment. When we submit to authority, we're loving our neighbor according to the fourth commandment, and so forth. And, and there's even a different shape of love depending on your vocation under the different commandments. Your love according to the fourth commandment looks different if you're a child than it does if you're a parent. It looks different if you live at home or if you've moved out. It looks different if your parents are alive or if they've gone to rest before the face of Jesus. So the love according to the fourth commandment has different shapes according to the circumstances of our lives. And the same is true with the sixth commandment. You shall not commit adultery. This is a very unique and particular love. Intimacy belongs only to husband and wife in the bonds of marriage and any other intimate activity is illicit and sinful no matter how much it claims to be motivated by love. According to the seventh commandment, you shall not steal. There's another kind of shape to love. And it it looks different depending on, for example, if you're a boss or if you're a worker. If you're the one paying people, then the seventh, keeping the seventh commandment looks like generosity. And if you're the one being paid, keeping the seventh commandment looks like working with diligence and so forth for all of the different commandments. My love for you as your pastor means that I stand here and preach according to the third commandment. And your love for me as your pastor is you sitting there listening to me preach according to the third commandment. That's a third commandment-shaped love. So that love does not undo the commandments, but rather love takes shape according to the commandments. And this brings us to the third point, which is to say that love also takes shape according to our neighbor's need. When we look at one another, we look to see what the other person needs, what help and service we can give them, so that our love for each person is a very specific sort of thing. When we see that our neighbor is hungry, then we want to give them food. When we see that the need of our neighbor is that they're lonely, then we want to go and we want to befriend them. And we we know that every single one of our neighbors is a sinner like we are, so we love them by praying for them and by inviting them to come with us to church and so forth. So that love is 
only takes shape according to the commandments and according to our vocation, but love also takes shape according to our neighbor's need. Four, we love God by loving our neighbor. John writes, this is in uh, 1 John chapter 4, John writes, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, that man is a liar, for the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God who he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't talk at all about our own love for God, but it does mean that when we want to demonstrate our love for God, we demonstrate that love in the actions that we have for one another. We cannot talk about love for God without talking about our love for each other, for one another, and for our neighbor. And this love, I think it's safe to say, this love for our neighbor begins with our nearest neighbors and it works its way out. It begins with the love of husbands and wives for one another, with the love of parent and children for one another, with the love for co-workers, with friends, for the people who are sitting next to you in church. Our love for God begins with those who are nearest to us and works its way out to our farther neighbors. Our love for God is seen in our love for our neighbor. Fifth, and perhaps most importantly, the law of God and the command to love shows us our sin. You know this. We can never perfectly keep God's command to love. There's no, there's no time in our life when we say, you know what, I've done it. I have loved the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I have loved my neighbor as myself. According to the holy and righteous standard of God's love and God's law, all of us are guilty. All of us are lawbreakers. All of us are sinners. And the law shows this to us. Now, we know this, at least we ought to know this, but there's another theological danger that comes in here when we recognize that the chief purpose of the law is to reveal our sins and our sinfulness and to show us our need for our Savior. And the danger, and I wish I, could, I knew how to preach this better. Give me a couple of years, but I'll, I'm going to give it a shot now. There's a danger here. And, and there's something like this, that we know that we're sinners as an abstraction. I, I, that we know that we're sinners because the law tells us that we're sinners. Now, in one way, that's right. In one way, our sinful corruption is so deep and so profound that the only way that we know how bad we are is that the Bible tells us. Without the Scriptures, we think that we're pretty good people, that we're not that bad, that we're above average or whatever, that we're going to get into heaven because God grades on a curve. That's the that On our own, we think that, but... But when we turn to the Scriptures, we hear St. Paul say that no one is good, no, not even one. And we have to trust that, that it's true about us, that we also are not good. We believe by faith, not only what the Bible says about God, but what the Bible says about us, that we deserve God's eternal wrath and punishment, that we truly do deserve it, that that's how bad we are. So we do believe that we are sinners by hearing the Scriptures tell us that we're sinners, but we also know that we're sinners, and here's what we don't want to miss. We also know that we're sinners because we actually try to keep the law, we actually try to love our neighbor, and we fail. This is point six, the last point on the law here. 
that we know our sins because we venture and we try to actually accomplish good works and we fail. Now, I wonder sometimes, again, here's the danger, I wonder sometimes, because we're always hearing the preaching of the law, the preaching of God's law, we're always hearing the preaching that we are poor, miserable sinners, and we think, I know that I'm a sinner, so I'm not even going to try. I know that I'm going to fail to love, so I'm not even going to try to love. I know that I can never be perfect, so I'm not even going to begin to attempt a life that pleases God. I'm not going to try to love God or love my neighbor. I'm not going to try to serve God and serve my neighbor. And this is a particularly dangerous way to think. It seems to me, at least this is my own thinking about this, that we are good at praying the evening prayer. Remember, I pray that you would forgive me all my sins that I have done wrong, but we forget to pray the morning prayer. I pray that all my doings this day would be righteous in your sight. We have to pray both of them. So that the law wants us, in fact, to get after it. To try with everything that's in us to love and to serve and to bless our neighbor. To try and then to fail and then to see our sin and then to repent and then to rejoice that the Lord Jesus has mercy even for us and then get after it again. Pray for strength. and Pray for wisdom. And open our eyes and our ears to see our neighbor's need and go out there to love our neighbor and serve our neighbor and bless our neighbor and fail at it all. Be miserable failures and repent and rejoice in the Lord's forgiveness and then get after it again. That's how we're set to live in this life according to God's law. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And this law stands. But then Jesus has even more for us. It's really, it's really quite stunning because it's not only the law that the Lord wants to teach us this morning, but also the gospel. So Jesus, back to the text, Jesus, after he's silenced the, the Pharisees and silenced all of his opponents, he turns to them and then he asks them a question. He's going to give them a riddle. Verse 41 of the text. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. Now, this has to do with 2 Samuel chapter 7. You'll remember what happened. David had, had, had won all of these battles, and he had built himself this nice big palace out of cedar wood, but it was right down the hill from the temple, which was or the tabernacle, which was still a tent from the time of Moses. Now, I think they'd probably had replaced the walls and stuff from that time. But still, God was living in a tent when David was living in a house. And so David says, I'm going to build a house for the Lord. And he goes to Nathan the prophet and he says, I'm going to build a house for the Lord. And Nathan says, do whatever your heart says that you should do. So David goes to start making plans to build a house, but the Lord comes to Nathan, the prophet, in a dream, and he says, not so fast, David. I didn't command for you to make me a house, to build me a palace. In fact, and the Lord turns it around, he says, I don't want you to build me a house. I want to build a house for you. And the Lord comes to David through Nathan the prophet, and he says that your seed, your child, will sit on the throne forever. And thus, God promises that David's son will be the Messiah. 
Or that, to say it another way, that David, one of David's offspring would serve as the one who would crush the devil and rescue his people. And the Pharisees knew it. So Jesus says to them, whose son is the Messiah? And they said, the son of David. So then Jesus asked them this question. How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And they weren't able to answer him a word. And from that day on, they didn't dare to ask him any more questions. The Pharisees can't figure out the riddle. David, son, David's son will be the Messiah, but David calls his son his own Lord. The Pharisees are stumped, but we're not. We remember there are three great mysteries to the Christian faith, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, the doctrine of the Incarnation, and the doctrine of salvation. And this riddle has to do with the doctrine of the Incarnation, that Jesus is both David's son and David's Lord because he is both man, born of the Virgin Mary, and God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. Jesus can be both the Son of David and the Lord of David because our Lord Jesus Christ has in the unity of His person two natures, divine and human. The Pharisees had no idea about this. They simply missed the Bible. But the Scriptures come to us with this great and beautiful comfort that Jesus is true God and true man so that He can be our Savior. It is an amazing sort of thing that Jesus is both God and man and that he is both of them for us. He is man so that he can die and he is God so that his death can be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the Pharisees miss it, but we do not. We know the law commands that we should love God and love our neighbor, but we see in the person of Christ that the law has been fulfilled. That Jesus has lived and has died for us. That God has taken upon our own flesh and blood so that through His death He might deliver us who have been subject to bondage our whole lives. So that He would deliver us from the fear of death. So that He would forgive our sins. So that He would open to us the way of everlasting life. Jesus is, is David's Son and David's Lord so that He can be your Savior and your friend. And this is the Gospel. Now, the law is important, and the law is good, but the gospel is even more important, and this gospel is beautiful. Because this is how we will stand before the Lord on the last day. The law cannot save. The law cannot deliver from sin and death. But Jesus can. And Jesus has. He has died for you. He has put all of your enemies, sin, death, and the devil, under his feet by triumphing over them in the cross. Jesus has won the day, and all of it, all of it, is for you. So that you can be with him forever. So, dear saints, we rejoice in these two doctrines. This law, and most especially, this gospel. God's instructions and God's promises. And it's by this gospel, by these promises, 
that we will come to the joy of life eternal. May God grant that we would remain steadfast in His Word and attain this glorious vision, the smiling face of Jesus, David's Son and David's Lord. May God grant it for Christ's sake. Amen. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope. We hope your time with us was one of joy and peace in hearing the Lord's Word and kindness. If you have questions about anything you heard on today's broadcast, please don't hesitate to contact us at office at hope-aurora.org or call the office at 303-364-7416. For more information about our congregation, for locations, service time, and schedule, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope.